Welcome to the Living in Alignment podcast. My name is Amy Landry. Through a collage of conversations, here we distill mindful living and timeless wisdom within a modern, everyday context. Thank you for being here. Vikramjeet Singh took his first asana class in 2006. After steady practice, he went on to finish a 500-hour teacher training in Kerala, India, in early 2008. After teaching part-time for a few months, Vikram was called to switch careers and ultimately left a HR job to pursue full-time yoga teaching. Over the course of the years gone by, he has accumulated more than 11,000 hours of teaching experience across the U.S., Canada and India. Vikram is an Ayurvedic practitioner, having completed his studies from the Kripalu School of Ayurveda. And Vikram completed his yin teacher training with Bernie Clark in November 2015, and so therefore is a certified yin yoga teacher. More recently, Vikram received authorization from Sharath Joyce to teach the Ashtanga Primary Series. Being born and growing up in India, Vikram has always been fascinated with the rich history and stories from the Indian culture, which were a big part of his childhood. His passion for sharing this wisdom and a deep desire to study yoga history and philosophy has led him to be a part of the lead faculty for Modo Yoga, where he teaches modules on the history of yoga alongside the wisdom of the Yoga Sutra, Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. He also runs mentorship courses and workshops for teachers, studios, and practitioners to help bring yoga into every aspect of our lives. A strong advocate of true diversity and inclusion, Vikram consults yoga teachers and studios on cultural appropriation, decolonization, and inclusion in both yoga and related spaces. Vikram loves to share his culture and experience of growing up in India and believes that all practitioners at some point should visit the birthplace of yoga. To help support that initiative, he hosts annual retreats in India, where he currently lives in Goa, with his wife, Melissa, and their daughter, Satya. And I'm very happy to bring you this conversation today with someone whom I have personally learned so much from in recent months. All right, Vikram, firstly, um, one thing that I have mentioned to you already before pressing record and as we've chat and prepared for this podcast is that I really appreciate that you have a very level-headed diplomatic uh, middle path perspective on all things yoga and the way you present yoga. So um, in such a polarizing world, I feel like you have been a beacon for sanity and level-headedness. So with that, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time and for being here. Thank you for having me and thank you for those kind words. And just for the record, right, in case I ever meet you or any other listener in person, I'm not always so level-headed. So <laughs> if I slip, my apologies in advance, right? So I have too much pressure on myself to live up to this. But but thank you. I think that for me is the, is the key feature, at least in my messaging, um, is to kind of find that balance, right? Like yoga is samatvam, yoga is balance, yoga is equanimous. So if you can have that somewhere as a foundational aspect, you know, right from toppling tree and all the other balancing poses that we do on a daily basis, I think finding balance is key, right? And, and I understand um, it's it's hard sometimes, but at least having it as a foundational aspect 
of all things to yoga related, in my opinion, is a good place to start. Absolutely. Something where we are all striving for continuously, I think. Um, and I'd love to begin our chat. Uh, if you don't mind, if you could share with the listener your story thus far, particularly as it pertains to yoga, uh, given that you were born and raised in India, but you also have a really worldly understanding of, well, life in general, but particularly in the context of yoga, um, given that you have lived abroad, you've married a Canadian as I have too. So uh, feel free to, yeah, take us on a little bit of a, a journey with those highlights. Yeah. So um, I was <clears throat> I was born in Delhi in India and I have lived more or less my life in India till my early 20s and then work took me to the US, um, brought me back to India, went back to Canada to pursue higher education um, and took my first asana class in, in Toronto in 2006, thanks to a recommendation from my ex-boss, who I thank her till date. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have found yoga in the modern world, as we, you know, as I like to say. She asked me, quote unquote, you're Indian, you do yoga, right? And this is in 2006. And my answer to her was, quote unquote, nope, I'm Indian, I play cricket. <laughs> she started laughing. But it's true, you know, when I grew growing up in India, I didn't really have any access to the way we have access to yoga now, even in school systems, right? And around. My father did not go to a yoga studio. My mother didn't go to a yoga studio. They had their version of practices that looking back now, that still fall, that they still have, that fall under the umbrella of what we know as yoga, what we think is yoga. My grandfather perhaps was the most yogic of them all, right? Right. One, one of the most disciplined people I've met my whole life. And prior to me going to boarding school, when he would walk me to my bus stop, he would talk to me about life. He would teach me mantras. He would just, I guess he, at that point, looking back now, he was sowing seeds for things that he thought that I should think about and know. And, you know, when you, when you grow up in India, it's a very different, it's a very different world here. You know, some things are a given. The acceptance of life, the acceptance of circumstances, the acceptance of the have and the have nots, the acceptance of divinity, the acceptance of karma, they're all around you. So even if you're not studying yoga, if you're even not learning yoga, if you're not even doing any asana, any pranayama, any meditation, you're growing up in that fabric, right? India is often termed as karma bhumi. People are born here to work their karma out or they come to India to work their karma out. So that's what my bringing was. I was <clears throat> really big into, into the Puranas or the Itihas, right? I was huge. Even now, you could quiz me on, on the Mahabharata or the Ramayana. I'm a little rusty, but I used to love that. I would get lost in that world. Those comics are still available, Amar Chitra Katha, um, and I would read them on the regular. I played a lot of sports, a lot of cricket, as I told my ex-boss, uh, and I would read and I would love the stories. And I and I would literally get lost in those stories, you know, whether it's Hanuman or whether it's whether it's Parvati and her penance. And, and I love that. So I I transported all of that upbringing fast forward to Toronto in 2006. And I was like, all right, I'll go try a yoga class. And I went and it was a, a 90 minute asana class in Canada, a hot yoga class. And I, and I have this very vivid memory of being on my mat at the end of the class, really sweaty, very tired, feeling quite stiff in my body. Um, almost 
connecting with a sense of peace. You know, I can still remember it. I, I, I remember what that feeling felt like in my body, in my mind. And I was hooked. And I, and I started practicing asana every day post that, sometimes twice a day, right? I would go to a hot, sweaty class and then go for a yin practice. Um, and that kind of that kind of set the foundation for the next two years. I had a corporate job. I would practice regularly, made some friends, was really was really intrigued by what was happening. Was very competitive in the in those first years. Always wanted to practice front row center in front of the mirror. Wanted to be the best in class, kick the highest. I would get mad if I would fall out of a pose. So it's interesting to look back on those years. And somewhere along those lines, I I, I saw a flyer that said teacher training in India, in Kerala, in South of India for four weeks. And I was like, yep, I can pull that off. So I took off for four weeks, did my did my teacher training. It was a 500-hour teacher training. Came back. And in July of 2008, had the option to switch cities to stay with my job, but I chose not to. Um, took a couple of interviews in different companies in Canada. But long story short, when 2008 ended, I didn't have a job and I had been teaching part-time a little bit. So I started 2009 with the steely result to become a full-time yoga teacher. Um, and perhaps one of the few resolutions I've stuck with in my life. So fast forward to today, I'm, I'm still teaching full-time. Um, I've been living in India for the last three years. Uh, Pre-pandemic January, 2020, we came here for a bit and then just stayed here. So this is home now. I, I, I don't teach as much, not even close to as much asana as I used to, mostly you know, philosophy, concepts, um, mentorships, courses. But it's been a very fulfilling journey. And somewhere along that journey, um, I added more certificates, more courses, more asana styles, just embraced all of it that came my way. I still continue to do so. But if I go back to the very beginning, I think being born in the house where I was born, having that relationship with my grandfather, I think spending some of the early formative years in India perhaps set the stage for what would happen 15 years later in my life. So I do have a, a lot of reverence and gratitude for my parents, for my grandfather, for kind of subconsciously initiating this process. Um, his name is Satya. Our daughter is named after him. And uh, and yeah, and then uh, I guess I, I should say thank you to my ex-boss. If it wasn't for her and her desire, you know, when your boss makes a a soft recommendation, you take it. I used to work in HR. I was an HR manager. So of course I would take a recommendation. The boss said, go try yoga. So I did. And I'm really thankful I did. Um, you know how how samskaras remain dormant and then they get activated in the right circumstances. Speaking very simply, I think by yoga samskara, at least the yoga samskara, the way we know it now, was lying dormant for a very long time. And it got activated in that yoga class. And it's alive and thriving and, and probably will stay with me, you know, till my time here is up. So, yeah, that's a little brief snapshot. Uh, I've lived, in, lived primarily in Canada, traveled extensively, taught extensively, have lived in the U.S. for a, for a bit, taught there, um, you know, had the opportunity to, to, to travel to South America for some yoga teacher training. So it's been very interesting, you know, very thankful for all the teachers and the students who have crossed paths with, because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here in this capacity. So it's been a very fulfilling journey. I can look back and say I've learned a lot, but I can also say in the same breath that despite all the evolution and transformation, I know there's still so much more to learn and so much farther to go. Not necessarily in, in any direction, you know, 
we always think of going up in yoga. So just just walking, I think of it as a, a flat road. It's not really climbing anywhere. It's, it's pretty flat. Mm. Yeah, It's a beautiful story. And I do appreciate the mention to your grandfather because that's something I do admire that I think is part of the culture in India is that it's, there is a deep respect for the elders and caring for them and, and appreciating their wisdom, at least from the outside, um, comparative to what we often see and witness in the Western world. Um, but in your story that you've just shared too, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but knowing that primarily those listening to this podcast are going to be from the Western world or at least living in the Western world, can we just briefly unpack the cultural context for yoga? Like, what does that even mean? And obviously we know that perhaps going to India, traveling to India can give us some of that insight but, but what does that mean? What is in the Indian culture? What, what's the relevance there to yoga that is invaluable and enriching to deepening our studentship and our, and our practice? I think two things come to my mind right away. You know, because of technology and because of easy access to it, and it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but yoga is a, yoga has big currency, right? Everybody knows yoga. Everybody knows yoga in some capacity or the other. And predominantly, we, we view yoga as, as contorting yourself in some sort of a pose. Or we view yoga as sitting somewhere in a remote place in utmost peace with no disturbances in your life. But the truth is, it's somewhere in between, right? Somewhere mm-hmm. between, between those extremes. And that's the best way I can, I can describe yoga. And I've been living in India off and on for a long time. Uh, half of my life has 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 been lived here. Yoga here is viewed more as a way of life than an actual activity. And I say that keeping in mind that there is modernization and studios and studio culture and asana culture and the concept of going to yoga, right? Like it's an activity that one goes for, that you start at 9 a.m. and finish at 9.45 or 10.30 or whatever the case may be. But that I want to say, it's a it's a newer trend, and it'll stay. It's here to stay, right? Just like anywhere else in the world, that aspect, that evolution of yoga is here to stay. And again, not good or bad. It is what it is. It is what it's kind of like what I think about the internet or AI or anything else. You know, these are things that are becoming a new reality, a new lived reality. But even now, especially if you leave the big cities, if you find yourself in smaller cities you will see that kind of yoga that I saw when I was growing up being practiced, where it was in the park, where it was under the tree, where it was a group of friends coming together, where it was disseminated through these informal satsangs, where it was disseminated through visits to temples or to gurudwaras or or, or wherever one went to, right? It was very intricately and seamlessly woven in the fabric of life. It wasn't a separate activity. You know, that I want to say is the new is the new thing where it's looked at as an activity that has one, two or three combinations, right? Mostly asana, pranayama, meditation. So that I want to say is, is something new is here in the big cities, but the old hasn't left. It still exists. From a cultural context, I think when I think of myself, there's a, that cultural context provides I think a very strong foundation of 
what is okay in this world and what's not okay in this world, speaking of the yoga world, and kind of helps inform and draw some ethical boundaries, draws some semblance around what's okay, what's not okay, what at some point might be considered offensive, might be considered inappropriate, might be considered disrespectful. I think that's where cultural context plays a large part. And I've seen that in fellow practitioners, in some senior teachers that I study with, because they have lived in some capacity here, or because they have a very strong tie or a connection, even if it meant less time physically living here, they are able to imbibe and understand that cultural context. It's hard to put it into words. It's hard to put into words because I'm just gonna throw my nephew under the bus here. You know, my older nephew is 13 and he has lived his whole life here. He is born to Indian parents. He's lived his whole life in India. But his understanding of that cultural context is a little different because he's growing up in an India that's a little different. That's a little modern. That's a little savvy. That's that's already changed. So I also want to say that, you know, with a pinch of salt, that time does play into that conversation. What India looks like, what the cultural context seems like, again, big cosmos cities, big cosmopolitan cities is very different. If I just think of me growing up in a big cosmopolitan city compared to, um, let's say, my nephew, either one of them, right? They're 13 and 9. They have a very different perspective. I don't see, I don't think they're able to see things in such contrast like we did. It was all around you, you know, this this beauty of life, but also the sadness of life, but also this, but also this amazement of life. You know, I, I spoke earlier about, you know, watching those things make sense later. This concept of karma and and samskaras. I studied them much later in my life. But the cultural context of living through it makes the understanding a little more applicable, both in your life and, and the people around you. So I think that is a is hard to transmit. You know, I, I I am a teacher, right? I do this for a living. And beyond sharing my own personal embodied experience, that one sometimes is hard to transmit. I feel you have to, you have to be immersed in it to fully feel, to fully feel it. And you could have multiple, you know, you've traveled extensively in India, you've spent some time here. You can have a very on the surface experience where you come stay in fancy hotels, check off all the top sites and go back. Mm-hmm. You can also have a very harrowing experience where you didn't do enough research and stayed in places that went very clean, hygienic, had an upset tummy, and then went back saying that you would never come back again. <laughs> but again, since the theme of this conversation is balance, somewhere in between those 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 experiences mm. lies the truth, or at least some sort of a, a relative truth, if not the absolute truth, that there, that there is lots that one can still learn culturally, historically, traditionally, um, but it's not the all-encompassing version that you would see. So f- if anyone who's listening and wants to come to India, um, no amount of preconceived notions would work. Just coming to India is not a guarantee of being immersed in the culture. Mm. You, know, you could just stay in the Shangri-La in different cities and go back. It's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Your staff is all Indian. Your food was all Indian. Your chef is Indian. Everybody around you is Indian. Your driver's Indian. But that would not be a cultural immersive experience. Absolutely. <laughs> Having said that, I'm going to bust a stereotype here. Having said that, sitting in Rishikesh in a cafe reading Shantaram and having a vegan smoothie as you look at the as you look at the Ganga is also not a fully cultural immersive experience, you know. So, so India has more to offer between those 
extremes. And I think do some research, you know, speak with you. Uh, you're welcome to reach out to me and kind of and kind of take a deep dive, take a deep dive in the cultural immersive experience and and maybe don't have any preconceived notions of it and just let it slowly evolve and unfold to mm. get the full experience, the full richness of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's so much chaos and complexity and polarity in India itself. And even just the contrast between the various states and, and the difference in the culture and the food and the textiles and the architecture and the language, it's just, you know, and I, and I, it, exactly in the moment that you were speaking to it, I was thinking, this is what I tell people when they contact me and go, okay, I want to go to India. And I say, well, I really don't recommend this completely sheltered experience where you're staying in all the five-star hotels and resorts and, you know, having driving around in the fancy cars and on the tour buses, because you're, you are not, you are, you're not letting yourself get into that gritty, intense beauty confronting chaos that is just utter magic and and but then yeah I mean I know many people that have had the complete opposite where they've you know been sick all the time they've been had all this horrible like experience on the trains and being told the train's not running and all these just nightmare experiences and it's yeah it's about finding that middle ground where you feel safe and secure but you're not being sheltered from the reality around you um and that's what I love so much about India is that that yeah complexity and that capacity to uh be open open to that um and from a yoga perspective you know i i forget which one but there was a survey done a while ago and you know they they spent a lot of money it was a well-funded survey they asked a lot of people and the general consensus that came back was that everybody in india does not practice yoga but because the question if the questions are geared if i if i go and do a structured class for a lot of people, that's not a financial or a logistic option. I live in Goa, which is known for its yoga retreats and yoga teachers and yoga teacher trainings. There's not really studio culture here. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it all depends. What one might view as yoga is very different from what yoga could be viewed as here. And you, you can get your flavor of both. You know, I mentioned Rishikesh. You can go to Rishikesh and find a yoga teacher training school, perhaps one in every two blocks, right? Sometimes three in every in every two blocks. Um, so there is no dearth of yoga schools. There's no dearth of yoga teachers in India. There's no dearth of opportunities to learn yoga of any style, any capacity here. But what I'm saying is that there's a one also needs to understand that there is no blanket statement that you can say that yoga means this in India or when you go to India, yoga would look like this because a lot of people practice yoga in ways that we would not perhaps as ascribe of, of to them doing yoga. They don't own a yoga mat. They don't have yoga clothes per se. They don't have yoga accessories. They don't have a fixed time for it. It's very unstructured. Um, but so that's, that's the other thing I kind of wanted to highlight is not having yeah. this one notion of what yoga in India looks like. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it, it it is like anywhere else in the world evolving here as well and yeah. and going multiple changes and and some parts of it would be exactly the way you know it in in in, in the west you know or, or wherever else you're traveling from it looks exactly like that right from the studio to the props to the to the playlist to the you know to everything to the leggings to the retail section outside to the vegan cafe attached to it exactly similar yeah so so also not not having a preconceived notion in terms of 
I would say if you haven't ever been here, come and experience it, but know that it's not it's not one thing here. Yeah. And I think that's important to emphasize, you know, as we were talking about off air, um, we chat for at least 45 minutes. And these are some conversations I've had with folks in my private messages on Instagram from the Indian community. And they're like, well, there is a fair amount of commodification of yoga in India and misrepresentation. And so that leads me to kind of where I wanted to direct the conversation now. And uh, you had clarified previously when we were chatting that, you know, misrepresentation is something that's happening within India. And it's when, it, when we're speaking about what's happening outside of India, it's cultural appropriation, which is a, a really helpful discernment. And so I'd love you to elaborate on that for the listener, but can we tie that into the conversation that is, you know, quite hot, a, a hot topic, a bit of a buzz topic um, in certain circles in the yoga community online. And that is the subject of decolonization and there are many people in my community that are like, hang on a minute, what? Like, what are you talking about? What is this? When I, when I kind of speak a little bit on this. Um, and then people are, other people are very, very deeply aware of what's going on. And I think it's important to talk about, well, whose responsibility is this? Because, uh, and I, I mean, of course it's everybody's, but we, I don't think it's healthy to point the finger at anybody um, in the sense that, well, I mean, I, my ancestry is predominantly British. I, I come from, you know, colonialism really essentially. And so am I the right person to, to decolonize something? Uh, or as a gentleman uh, from India said to me in, in a message, he said, well, you know, it's also a mentality of the people within India of embracing their culture and, and stepping into that. Uh, and because there's obviously a huge Western influence, not just in yoga, but all across uh, India uh, and sometimes I've been so surprised I remember when I went to Bangalore the first time and I was wearing like kurta and like traditional Indian clothing and most people around me were in you know western clothing and so this is not to highlight anything's right or wrong but that it's such a complex issue nobody's actually defined the end goal that we're working toward what does decolonized yoga actually look like uh, do we represent the South Asian Indian community but how do we do that without tokenizing and just putting people on a stage, even if they're not necessarily qualified in a field to speak to? Is that right? Like it's it's such a tricky thing because people just want to do the right thing, uh, generally speaking, if they're aware of this issue, but also afraid of like, okay, well, well, what what do I need to to do personally, and what do I need to own in this, and how can we all move forward in a way that promotes unity rather than polarity? I mean, that's such a big subject, but would you like to speak to that? I'll give it a try. <laughs> I think uh, I think the key lies in, uh, in discernment, right? The key lies in discernment for everybody. So like I was saying to you, since I am from the source culture, if I do something that that is not aligned. I'm 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 providing a distorted version of that, right? I'm misrepresenting something because I already by default, by virtue of my ethnicity, I'm a representative, right? From a cultural aspect of it. And and if I'm from not the source culture and belong predominantly to a majority group, especially which which obviously comes with privilege and power, and I'm taking, if I'm cherry picking pieces and providing a new packaged, a new packaged version and using my power and my privilege and saying, this is what it is, that's the other spectrum, right? That's 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 cultural appropriation. And once again, the answer lies somewhere in between. 
where it gets complicated is, you know, we would all love to decolonize yoga, but unfortunately, there's much bigger forces at play. And I don't mean divinity, I mean good old-fashioned money or capitalism, right? When I see some misrepresentation here, for most parts, it's rooted in, uh, I want to say, like a like an inherent desire to to have a voice, to speak up, to have a platform, right? But when I see the gross misrepresentation, it's rooted in the desire to make money, mm. you know? Um, and the same on the other end. So if you're absolutely looking to decolonize yoga, I, I don't think that's actually possible, uh, as, as depressing as that might sound. I think the very first step, and I want to give a practical answer, as at an individual level, I'm not even going to go studio owner or a, or a yoga company. At an individual level, you're trying to build a genuine relationship with yoga. And then if you have in some capacity, the responsibility to speak about it, to share it, you're trying to do justice to that. So the discernment lies in terms of how do you view it, right? Like I was saying this to you before off air is that I have the advantage of being born here, right? So I have a very strong a line I will not cross in my head. And my conditioning has helped to keep that line intact. So I would not be swayed or lured by money, by endorsements or whatever to do something that I think is against my ethical understanding of, of representing yoga. But for a lot of people, that line might not exist or the money is too good to ignore the line. So at the end of the day, irrespective of your ethnicity, irrespective of your, uh, any other label, let me just put it this way, any label that you identify with, irrespective of that, if you have a very clear connection in your being or what does it mean to practice and teach yoga and you're able to bring that you know, with, with integrity, out into your circle, out into your community, that's a good way to approach this conversation. And, and when it comes specifically to decolonization, I think the deeper issues there besides capitalism are power, right? I was saying this to you, you know, who who is the gatekeeper? Who sits in the seat of decision-making? Who decides what is yoga, what is not yoga? Who decides what yoga looks like? Who decides the curriculum for YTTs? Who decides how much time should be spent on philosophy, on ethical worldviews versus asana? Who sits on the board of directors? Do they have any actual power or are they just a board of directors? And is that board of directors come from a result of this new trend to, to go diverse? You know, diversity and decolonizations are two different things. Diversity is easy. You start changing the, the colors in the room and your room gets diverse. But decolonization is more than changing the colors in the room. Decolonization is the, color in the, the colors in the room or the people in the room have one common uniform agenda and they all have uh, a decision-making capacity to bring that agenda to life. That to me is, you know, and even as you say it, it's as lofty a goal as trying to, be, trying to reach Samadhi. You know, I think of it, you know, or mastering the yamas and the niyamas. That's a big lofty goal. I'm like, who am I even talking to when I'm saying this? 
you know, who is this person that I'm saying to? <laughs> so we have governing bodies, right? We have Ayush in India. We have the Yoga Wheel in the UK, uh, Yoga Alliance. I'm not sure if there's like a body like that in Australia. There is, yeah, Yoga Australia. Yeah. So it, it would start there, you know. Mm. Uh, in I know there's bodies of yoga therapists, you know. And and these are not these are not policing bodies. These are bodies that are helping to create a structure and a framework as as organic as it can be. So that's the that's the logistics piece of it, right? These folks would need to make that happen and have the right people. I think of it no different than than a country with its set of politicians, right? This is the the yoga country, if I speak simply, and we need the right people leading it. We need the people who have uh, some sort of a common agenda, leading it in a certain direction, channeling in a certain direction. And those voices have equal representation and equal power. They are not swayed on either side. Um, so that's the broader picture. From an individual level, you know, look, look at your own journey, you know, look at your own journey and see who's part of that journey. What what have you learned so far? Whom have you learned from so far? Who do you deem as an expert? Who does who does your community deem as an expert? And and be open and explore. You know, at the end of the day, anything that one would learn in the broad genre of yoga, asanas included, is for personal transformation, right? Right. When I go do yoga in the world and I'm thinking of selfless service and seva and stuff like that, then I'm doing upliftment outside. But as a, as a student in the modern day, most of what I'm receiving, I'm receiving that or I'm going down that path with the intent to change and transform my own life. So see who, who is a part of that. I think building a deeper connection there also is part of it. Um, and just constant awareness, you know, constant awareness in terms of have a very clear definition. What is it that you're trying to teach? What is it that you're trying to practice? Is it tied does it have history? Does it have context? Does it have a culture attached to it? Who would be responsible for, or, or let, let me say, what is your responsibility towards that if you're a teacher? You know, it's, it's, it's a much deeper conversation, but I'm saying that blindly following a checklist doesn't serve an agenda, you know? Mm. Um, mm. I think you mentioned as well once on a, another podcast interview on the Let's Talk Yoga podcast, something that landed for me was that, I think it was this, the namaste conversation and, you know, you're like, this is just such low hanging fruit, you know, and, and these yeah. things, you know, and I got caught in that trap too. And I think, oh, well, it doesn't really, it doesn't really move the needle forward in this bigger, bigger picture way. And, you know, something that's really landed for me today that you've, you've mentioned now, but we, we elaborated on earlier as well is that really in terms of diversity and, and the representation of Indian and South Asian community at large in the yoga industry if you will is really powerful to have those voices behind the scenes you know those decision making positions really like who's the editor of these magazines and who's on the board for these festivals and events and who are making these decisions and I think that that's actually where there would be tremendous um, movement in terms of making progress here you know and this ties into kind of yeah this politicization of yoga online it's like these it's an, an attempt of yeah money it's attempt of fame and um the way that it's being handled i guess if you will and i think that yeah you're so right that whilst there's importance and value there to visually see that diversity and representation that it, it's actually way more impactful than for these people 
based as well on their merit, not just their ethnicity. They're based on their studentship and their qualification and their study and their life and their experience. So put them in those seats where they can influence the decisions that are being made globally around how yoga is going to be presented. Does that make sense? For sure. And you can see that, you know, I, I don't I don't want to take any names, but you can see that there's a lot of teachers that I know of that I started with whose work I really admire and respect. You can see that because of their association and their longevity and their commitment to the transmission of yogic teachings, they don't they don't do any faux pas. They don't. They, that invisible line I spoke about, even though they weren't born here, you know, they have Western names, they look nothing like me. They have embodied that invisible line. It informs their actions. It informs their messaging. They they would probably not even entertain these conversations. They're like, this is a pointless conversation. You know, it's it is a lived reality, but a pointless conversation. Of course, this has this has no matter. This has no shelf life, because they have that deep connection. It's impossible. You know, people say that. Oh, uh, I'm not sure how to build a deep connection. This is also a relationship. If a relationship is not rooted in reverence and love, it has no legs. Think of any relationship in your life. If it is not founded on reverence, if it's not founded, reverence for the relationship, not for the person, you know, not putting people on pedestals, but reverence for the relationship and the sanctity for the relationship and a genuine love. What guides me, sure, you can say that, you know, what guides me is because I'm an Indian, I was born here, but no, what, what guides me is my relationship with that practice. I feel that it would... <laughs> It would cause a frack, you know, like you don't do things in a relationship because you're like, oh no, that would, that, that would not make sense. You yeah. know, it was an influx. There's this desire to protect it and preserve it and not protect it and preserve it from the sense of, because it's mine, because of what it is. Mm. It's kind of ironic, right? We speak about practicing detachment, practicing detachment, but everybody's going around trying to claim it's theirs. <laughs> well, good place to practice detachment and say, I'm going to preserve it because of what it is, not because it's mine. Because yeah. I, I'm sorry, <laughs> at the risk of sounding morbid, I'm not going to be around. Eventually, I will not be here. And the beauty of it is it has outlived. It was before we came around and messed it up a little bit. And then it'll be long after we've gone and tried to mess it up a little bit more. Mm. You know, it has, it has, it predates us. It, uh, it will outlive us. What will we do with it with our time here? is what's relevant and how do we shape it you know i think of it what am i what am i what am i going to leave with the people who i'm in contact with with my community with my daughter for my daughter what will be my involvement in shaping that right it's it's a big part and we're all trying to shape it you know and and some shapes look really abstract and and not aligned but that's someone's version of it right even even in this broad genre there's so many literatures there's so many schools you know sankhya and vedanta don't agree on the metaphysics but are they out to discredit each other? No. They all have the same goal in mind, right? I always take people back to the source. Multiple voices, arguing voices, doing sambad, debating, right? But they all were propagating the, the same path. So if as yoga teachers, if as yoga practitioners, if as yoga ambassadors, at some point, as yoga decision-making people, at some point, the goal of preservation is that more or less far-reaching goal to some capacity, right? I'm not sure how many people are interested in attaining samadhi in this lifetime, but have that as a goal when they start the yoga practice, right? Probably not. It's, you know, better relationships, sleep better, flexibility. Speaking of flexibility, you know, 
the surveys that come out, 65% people reported more flexibility in the body. Imagine if you could report flexibility of the mind. Mm -hmm. That to me is the is the cherry on the on the on the, the on the top, right? As they yeah. say. Flexibility yeah. of mind. I started practicing yoga and my hamstrings are open and my shoulders are open. And I'm a lot more flexible towards my worldviews and acceptance and tolerance. Stand for what you think is right, but having some flexibility around that. So to me, I'm kind of digressing right now, but to kind of loop the conversation back to what you asked me, I think I think the key is is finding that personal connection because that personal connection pretty much for the rest of your life will shape your association with it. And either you have the connection or you don't, or you have a very fluid connection or you have a solid connection. So building that connection, building that connection on love and reverence, because I, I hate to say it, we can spend hours debating uh, is yoga Indian, is yoga South Asian, is yoga religious, and there's no one answer to it, right? You cannot extrapolate the cultural context of yoga and put it aside under the guise of, well, asanas are 150 years old. Uh, so everything is transnational. Everything is modern. We can't, you know, you can stay there, but even they have a long lived history. Asanas are already in the books codified in the ninth century on temple art in, in visual paintings. Right. So, but this is not a talk about yoga history. This is kind of understanding that the context is not going to disappear. What will your relationship with that cultural context be? I think will inform how you move in this world. Mm. And just grabbing a couple of words that you've been using, and one is transmission and the other is preservation. Um, this might be a more simplistic way to to speak to that, but that's one thing I really appreciate about how you share and teach online and how, how I gravitated to you and your content. And that's sort of the foundation of why I choose to follow who I follow online, because I actually learned something not about, you know, who owns this and who should represent that, but it's about like who is actually transmitting and preserving the teachings of yoga and who can I learn from and how can I continue to, uh, I guess, stand with to, yeah, to, to really stay loyal to reclaiming and retaining the essence of the teachings rather than getting too caught up in all the other seemingly superfluous polarizing stuff which is not to indicate that there's no value in that there is I totally wholeheartedly am aligned with the sentiment that underlines sort of that mission uh, but I think at the end of the day it comes back to being loyal to the preservation of yoga and and also having the integrity to wholeheartedly devote yourself in some way to studentship uh, and even if that's just literally learning from people like you, like being online and looking at what you have to share, at least that's giving you another layer of, of meaning to your practice. So on the subject of transmission, and you know, we can we don't need to unpack this too much, but the idea, particularly from India, of having the guru, the teacher, the spiritual teacher, and being connected to lineage particularly a living lineage so having that connection to parampara some people really crave that i think we've i kind of commented on one of your posts once about that um they they crave they they're yearning it's almost like you know yearning for their beloved or for their mother or something they just so deeply want that connection to teacher and then there's others that are very repelled by that whole idea which is understandable because of exploitation and corruption and all that sort of stuff 
But again, coming back to that that balance and that middle path, you know, for anybody listening, like what would you what would be your personal guidance as someone who, you know, has been on this path, but you have this sort of worldly experience and outlook as well as the cultural upbringing in India as well? I think it boils down to having a having a deeper understanding of what one is wanting from it, right? So I taught uh, uh, a lot of asana classes. And while teaching those classes, I uh, I built up a, a following. So those people came to my class because the way I taught, the poses are the same, right? A triangle is a triangle, side angle, you know, doesn't matter, whatever the sequence was. They came because they felt there was a connection in what I was bringing to them right? In a 60-minute window, 75-minute window. And the combination was always the same. Things that came out of my mouth, which were non-cues, uh, the, the pose, the, the container that they moved and collectively sweated in. That was that was the reason why, why they would come to my class, right? The people that I would see on a regular basis. So I was able to provide to them what they needed from that perspective, right? And they were very clear. They weren't, they weren't coming to my class for any other reason uh, and any other reason other than than what I could give to them, right? Either consciously or subconsciously. So if there's this desire to kind of find a guru, find a teacher, um, kind of dwell deeper into that and, and see what is it that you're wanting from this person, either someone that you know of or someone that you don't know of. And, and exploring that and exploring that that question that what am I trying to get from that? Technology has taken care that everyone is easily accessible. You know, your your guru doesn't have to live in the same postal code as you <laughs> or the same country as you also, right? Mm -hmm. You can have a guru online if need be. Um, so I, I don't have a guru. It's kind of ironic. I've lived most of my life in India. I have you know, easier access, I guess, to to the wise holy man. And maybe because I wasn't seeking one at some level, I don't have one. And 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 I can share a personal anecdote, a personal emotion. Sometimes I see people who have these loving relationships with their gurus. And I was like, how come I never found one? I was right here. But I wasn't seeking one. I wasn't trying to find one. There was nothing that I wanted from anybody in that capacity. I've had very influential teachers in my life and still do, but no one who would kind of fit that role of the removal of darkness or my one or my one thing or my one uh, constant mentor, right? It's very common. There's lots of gurus. I was hanging out with some friends and they were saying, oh, this guru here and this Swami here and this guru here and the room is filled and people are there. If you think about it, people are there because they want to be told what they want to hear. You know, they, they have problems and they're looking for answers. So some people look for those answers in books. Some look to their practice, some look to their meditation, some look to their asana practice, some look to nature. At the end of the day, you're trying to find answers that are relevant to you, that make sense, right? I, I'm speaking about the modern world we live in, right? Not necessarily Guru Shishya of the olden times. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was a different time. So people look for those answers and someone who comes close to giving those answers kind of becomes their mentor, beacon, guide, and I guess at some point, a guru. So... If you are craving that relationship, maybe ask that what are you wanting from that relationship? Answers to life, clarity on text, clarity on subjects. And one might not be able to find a guru in the conventional sense, but I think you would be able to find the right teacher for you. 
and that teacher may um, outlive their role at some point of time, in which case you move on. You know, you already objectively move on once you've learned all that you wanted to learn, once that once they have shown you things that you that you were looking get trying to get some clarity on, you know, shed light, you know. Uh, yeah. then you move on. Now when it comes to lineages, I think that's again one's personal choice, right? So in a very uh, in a very basic example, if someone was wanting to study Advaita Vedanta as in the lineage of Shankaracharya, Shankaracharya taught some teachers and they taught some teachers and they taught some teachers and they're all over the world. So if that philosophy of living and practicing speaks to you, then you would just be very practical and find someone who is the closest to you, or if you're okay with studying fr from afar, then you would find a teacher in that lineage. Lineages have, I'm speaking broadly, lineages have fallen gurus because those gurus fell off the pedestal. And if you ask me very simply, it's because their practice wasn't strong enough and the dormant samskaras became active and took over whatever, what, whatever space that they could take over, right? They were human. And the samskaras became active and they went back to being very carnal human again, right? Um, but the wisdoms are devoid of the samskaras. The teachings are devoid of samskaras. The teachings of Advaita samskara are devoid of an actual person. If I give you a very, and I'm sorry if it sounds a little too technical, but if I give you a Patanjalian perspective, I think of the teachings as being Purusha Viveka, you know, or Vishesha. They are the special Purusha. That is the embodiment of consciousness, but it needs a physical person to transfer that. Mm, that physical so. person may or may not be flawed, but the teachings are not. Mm. So that's where it gets a little tricky that the person who is being the disseminator of those teachings, especially in these long living lineages that are active today. And technically, most of these are kind of scandal free because they're not very powerful positions. The ones that are rooted in scandal are mostly asana-based, if you think about it, because mm -hmm. they come with a lot of fame, money, and if I say it very, very simply, sexual temptations. Yeah. The other lineages, they, as it is a renunciate monks, they've already kind of done that work and left that peace behind. And they're not sitting in big positions of power, you know. I, I said I, I spent some time with this uh, with Swami Sarvapriyananda, you know, in the Vedanta Society of New York. He's already kind of he's a renunciate monk. He has his YouTube channel and he's famous and he's popular, but not in the way that a, a fallen asana guru would be, right? So to kind of wrap that question up, I would say that if you crave that connection with either a living person or a lineage, explore that a little bit before just jumping headfirst into it. Sorry, Vikram. I, I yeah. do also think that um, possibly the desire also is rooted in a very heartfelt, sincere uh, yearning for a sense of authenticity. You know, mm -hmm. like this is what I have to have or do to, you know, feel as though I can see myself as authentic on the path. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that could be a potential reason. Like, oh, this is just what you do sure. if you're, you know, if you're going to be legit, you know, a legitimate um, student. 100%. So, and that's, a, you know, that's a trap in itself. Um, yeah, but that's beautiful what you have to say and to really sit in that, um, you know, and a lot of people say, you know, it's the cliche, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, but perhaps that's because the student's just immersed in the studentship rather than the seeking of like someone to right. tell them. Uh, but, you know, 
also that being said, I think it is difficult for particularly, but not exclusively, Westerners to access the teachings. I mean, they're, they're, there's teachers everywhere, but to know where to go and who to ask, you don't, you can't necessarily Google it because you don't know someone's name. And, um, and how do you even know that that person is really teaching from an embodied place? Uh, it, it can be tricky. So I suppose that's why some people will seek that out. But I do really appreciate that that perspective of, well, firstly, sitting with it and trying to really move into that self-inquiry, essentially, to decipher why you you have that that yearning, first and foremost. Right. And also, what's your composition, right? Tantra is not for everybody. It's a highly ritualistic, very patient, very elaborate practice. You know, I had the opportunity to be initiated in that lineage, but I don't have that composition for that practice. I don't. I barely mm. keep my altar clean. You know, I don't have the patience or the perseverance for that. I need something that's a little more active. So please, by all means, because we live in a world where we have so much access, don't just jump into it because someone else jumped into it. See if you have the composition and the the gunas, if you have the mental makeup for a practice that you wanted to imbibe. And if you do, then kind of almost like peel the layers back. You know, what are these paths appeal to me? I hate to say it. It might be a bit of a smorgasbord. You might like practices from different schools and that's great if they are able to provide you a container you know all those all those practices again at the risk of repeating myself lead to the same place the metaphysical world might be different there might be one or two people involved they might be a deity they might not be a deity but they are are all geared towards the end of your suffering towards the end of your ignorance towards freedom in some capacity towards breaking the cycle of conditioned likes and dislikes to give you a narrative that's more than just your likes and dislikes and subsequently living in fear, right? Losing something, getting something you don't want. So that's that's the end reaching goal. Some have elaborate rituals. Some do deep contemplative meditations. Some stand on their head and try and put both legs behind them, you know? Eventually, they're all trying to take you there somewhere along that path. So you have to kind of like see what is it that works for you. And there is no guarantee that some path, that every path will work for you. If you don't have the makeup, the composition, and at some point, luxury of life. I don't have a two and a half hour asana practice anymore. That life is far behind me. Lucky if I can get half an hour, you know. In my head to this morning, I was going to get up at six and kind of get my thoughts together and log in at eight, my time. Satya woke up with me at six and I scrambled here by the seat of my pants at 7.55. (laughs) after playing with her in the bathtub yeah and i think it's it's important to highlight because this came to my mind when you said that is that becoming a parent really shifts your perspective on what yoga really is you know and to truly live yoga versus just a pra- you know practicing it people say to me all the time you know i'm struggling with that relationship i'm like i get it i get it i'm struggling with that relationship myself my asana practice is nowhere as uh, as consuming time consuming physically consuming like it used to be you know i I got to, I, I have limited time and I got to make the most of it. So I'm mm-hmm. trying to figure that. So, so on, in that same breath, see what speaks to you. Yeah. Just because someone is a guru, just because the lineage has been around for thousands of years does not mean that it's for you. You know, the, the Bhagavad Gita is just a book that's been read for thousands of years until it speaks to you, until it becomes relatable to you. Only when you see yourself in that book will those lessons make sense in English or Sanskrit or German or whatever language you speak, you know? Mm. 
So that relatability with the guru, with the lineage, with the teachings, that has to make sense. And at some point, be objective. Be objective that is it you who is running away or is it or is that not making sense? You know, I also like to say that can't keep digging holes all over the place trying to find water. You got to put in some effort, some yatana, right? That's a Sanskrit word. You got to put in some effort. None of it is instant gratification. Maybe asanas to some extent because they show up very quickly in the body and some subtle changes, but none of it is instant gratification, right? There's a reason why people have been practicing for 40 years and will probably put 40 more. There's a reason why they have stayed with that for so long. So be open and, and be honest about it. You know, As you're doing this exploration and you're figuring out which path, which lineage, which teacher, which guru, any of those labels, what works for you, also be honest. Because you can't just say everything is flawed, 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 where else you don't have the desire, you don't have the tapas. And that's okay too. If that's what your life looks like, that's fine too. But in the end, you know, I like to say that we, we like to put the teacher in, in this hot seat of responsibility. The practitioner has the same amount of responsibility. Your teacher can only do that much for you. And, and I say that both as a teacher and a practitioner, you know, at the end of the day, it is like I have obstacles in my path and supporting systems in my path, but the path is still mine to walk. And at some point we need to take full ownership of that and not keep transferring that responsibility. You know, oh, I quit having that style because, you know, the, the guru is a bad guy. Sure. Break all ties you can in any way possible. And I say that loosely, right? Because I don't have lived experience of that. But break any and all ties. Or maybe find a new practice, you know, once you're ready to. But the practice is the key. Not that person, not that lineage, not that book. Then it gets dogmatic. Yeah, it's tapping into what is truly timeless, I suppose, essentially. It's not necessarily that association with the person or the lineage. But, you know, also what came to my mind too is, and perhaps that's just because of personal experience. The yearning and the seeking may just be an indication that either A, you need to really just go deeper into your own practice and not necessarily through finding out more information, but to simplify and to just keep showing up and, and finding that consistency. Simultaneously, I thought, well, I also wonder if what we know, we're, we're craving this relationship to lineage or guru because what we know is devoid of depth at that, mm. at that time. And maybe, yes, it's about going deeper into phil phil philosophy or also looking at the other uh, teachings, not just that are strictly yogic that we see, but, you know, personally, I've done a lot of study in Ayurveda and ODC dance and, and you know, and, 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 you know, my study in Vedic mantra is tied to a living lineage and my study in dance is tied to a living lineage. And so through that experience, that feels really fruitful because it does feel like I am connected to something that ties back to something of tradition, <laughs> whatever, you know, we haven't, can we define what that really means? But, you know, you can see the line uh, right. where it's connected back, that unbroken line. But then it's like, okay, well, I've had that experience now and I need to keep showing up and just keep, keep practicing and keep, you know, just staying in my lane. And, and, and yeah, I think it's, it's also that outward craving still. Yeah. Will someone give me the answers or will someone fix me or something fix me when it's about actually coming back to, to doing your own work. So. Yeah. I have a, I have a conventional definition of spiritual bypassing, right? I also think of this like flitting around, that's, that's literally spiritual bypassing, not spending time long enough with any discipline, with any style, with any practice, with any teacher, but just like 
kind of like plating from plating like how a bee goes from a flower to the other, you know, you 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 have to spend some time there to find some relatability. And if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. But kind of like more courses, you know, I say that as someone who teaches courses, but more courses, more certificates, more of this is not going to solve the problem. Mm. You know, bringing attention to the problem will solve the problem if there is one. And if there is none, then, hey, your work's done, right? Uh, so some food for thought around that. Mm. And I think that's a, a very modern day conditioning we all crave more knowledge and more information and it's all about driving the intellect but less about like digesting and assimilating and applying yeah. you know um and that can be the trap that we fall into and i you know i know that i'm guilty of that and it's you know again it's it's, it's to some degree innocent because you have this desire to learn and to 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 add layers of depth it is a very sattvic desire it's rooted in sattva it's a desire to quest you know you're not like going on a shopping spree you're not hitting the factory outlets, right? And trying to buy everything. Mm-hmm. And you, 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 you want to buy all the spiritual wisdom. So yeah, I get it, you know, but I want yeah. to bring words to it. I want to mention it because I found myself at one point I was enrolled in six courses you know, at the same time. I didn't have the hours for it. And, and to be very honest, neither the money, but I was, you know? Yeah. So, so I think, yeah, like, you know, that, that reflection is, is much needed. That grounding is much needed. We can bring the hustle culture. You know, if you left the rat race and you left your six figure job and you left all of that behind, you can't get caught up in this just because it's sattvic, right? Then it's kind of more rajasic and less sattvic. So kind of bringing sattva back is, once again, finding that balance, right? The the influx will not stop, but the the waves will not uh, the waves will not stop undulating, but can they undulate in a more gentle manner? Can it be a gentle bob on the sea as opposed to this constant, you know, up and down and up and down? I think that's also some food for thought around that. Mm. Mm. just marinating in what you're learning because yeah and that's the beauty i think of the philosophical teachings that we can learn in yoga there's so many layers and so much depth even if you're just studying the same text or the same concepts but with different people you're going to unravel them in new ways and then of course as you as you grow and evolve in your own practice these concepts are going to change and that's the that's like such a, a beautiful thing yeah we don't need to flit around and bounce around uh, I've, I've personally, for a few years, put bans on myself for investing in courses and study because I just think I have everything I need for lifetimes in the books and the courses I've already done. Um, that being said, simultaneously, you know, some some obviously who would be listening to this conversation might be quite new on the path or may only have that exposure of yoga in terms of asana. Um, so perhaps that actually might be a really nice segue to to share about what you do, if anyone would like to find you online, you know, um, your Instagram is wandering Matt and right. it's fantastic, highly recommended. And yeah, like I, I know that you teach philosophy courses. I think that you've just done one or you've got one coming up and yeah. Would you like to share what you love? Yeah. So if you, uh, if you are a studio owner or if you are someone who kind of like offers continuing education to teachers, you know, reach out to me if you need any help with anything that's in your YTT curriculum from a philosophy perspective or from an inclusion, diversity, appropriation perspective. You know, that's those are the two things that I do for, I guess, bodies like organizations or studios. And if you're a fellow teacher, fellow practitioner, then um, uh, courses on the Bhagavad Gita. I have two self-paced courses. One's on the Bhagavad Gita. One we just wrapped up, Yoga Philosophy 101. Great if you're a beginner, not sure where to begin. Um and then coming up on June 18th and 25th, 
is my favorite topic. I probably wouldn't do a lot of justice to it. It's many lifetimes, but I'll take a shot at uh, at trying to teach, explain the yamas and the niyamas, and from my own lived experience, try and give some suggestions on how we can weave it into our lives, right? Someone on an Instagram comment wrote to me that asanas are so accessible. I'm like, asanas are accessible, but you still got to go somewhere to do them, even if in a self-practice. But even as I'm talking to you, even the words that are coming out of my mouth, the yamas and niyamas are right here. <laughs> so they're more accessible than we think they are. Do we want to reach out to them is the question. We just take them for granted. It's like how I take my breath for granted. My breath is there, but pranayama is not breathing, right? That's why it's uh, it's called breath work loosely, you know, in modern parlance. So the same with yamas and niyamas. So if that's something that's of interest to you, um, you know, send me a note and yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I love that you are helping to facilitate yoga teacher trainings uh, in terms of coming in, like, you know, as guest faculty and sharing your thoughts, your knowledge, your insight and your experience. Because, yeah, again, that kind of plays in with kind of circling back here a little bit to that that diversity and that representation. And for anybody out there listening, because obviously there are so many yoga teacher trainings out there, uh, you know, it might be a great conversation to have with you, to invite sure. you in and, and to share. Um, but it's beautiful that you're able to transmit these concepts in a way that is digestible. And that's, again, what I really appreciate with what you're sharing online, because it's it's clear, it's digestible, but it's not diluted. Um, and I, I really appreciate how you're, um, yeah, again, not diluting, but you're simplifying. You, know, you might take the tiniest concept and just elaborate on that. And that ties back in again to just how many layers there are to all of this. And um, yeah, so thank you for the work that you're doing. It's, it's yeah, wonderful. Thank you. You know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really amazing work happening in, in making yoga accessible from a, from a mobility, from an asana perspective. Um, my my work, my messaging is, is trying to bring that same awareness to the other aspects, which should be equally accessible, you know, in all aspects. So, um, and easy, simple, relatable. Otherwise, like I said, it's a fancy text someone wrote thousands of years ago and everybody reads it, but it's not relevant. I'm like, no, don't say that. It's very <laughs> relevant. It's 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 It was written for a reason. It was written with with the intent to be around many, many years later. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what you what you're doing is probably really relevant to anybody listening who's a student of yoga. I know this is a really common thing. I've had so many students come to me over the years. They are seeking more knowledge. They want to go deeper. They want to understand these philosophical concepts. It's a little bit tricky to do it just by reading the book alone. But you know, the only option that they see is to go and invest thousands of dollars in a yoga teacher training when they, you know, they that's not what they ideally want. And so what you're creating is obviously a perfect platform for people to come in and take these smaller concepts that are broken down, digest them, learn them, and then take the time to go away and assimilate them and then come back for more when they're ready, which is so needed. Thank so you. needed. Yeah. Well, Vikram, I'm really appreciative for your time. I'm going to wrap things up now, but I wholeheartedly am grateful for, again, the work that you do and just the connection with you. Um, you know, over these, I don't know, few months, whatever it's been. But um, yeah, thank you so much for your time and for doing all the work that you do. Thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. If this episode was of value to you and your life, please subscribe. And if you can think of someone who would benefit from this dialogue, please do them a favor and send it their way. 
If you feel called, hop on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. This is the best way to get these conversations into the ears and hearts of our wider community, to those who need it most. You can find me at amyelandry.com or over on Instagram at amyelandry. May we all move a little closer to a life living in alignment.